Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. It's The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. On April 1st, 2021, 1,100 workers from the Warrior Met coal mine in Brookwood, Alabama, went on strike for better working conditions. The miners, represented by the United Mine Workers of America, have been on strike for almost 23 months, nearly 700 days. This is believed to be the longest strike in Alabama history. But UMWA and Warrior Met are still at a standstill on contract negotiations, while the mines are still operating with replacement workers and still earning a profit. Last week, the UMWA leadership informed the remaining members on strike that the union would be entering a new phase to win a fair contract and sent a letter to the CEO of Warrior Met announcing that the striking miners were willing to return to work on March 2nd. Now, those coal miners who choose to return to work will be working under their old contract, while the UMWA and Warrior Met continue to negotiate. For more on this, we talk to... Kim Kelly. I'm an independent labor journalist and the author of Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. And Kim has been covering the Warrior Met coal strike since... April 1st, 2021 is when... 1,100 coal miners in Brookwood, Alabama, represented by the United Mine Workers of America. They walked out because contract negotiations with their employer, Warrior Met Coal, had essentially broken down. And this is a big reason why a lot of places go on strike, right? The bargaining table turns into a little bit more of a tug of war. But they were in an interesting position because they were working on a new contract building on a prior one that they signed five years earlier when Warrior Met had bought the mines and had hired back many of the workers who were laid off in a previous bankruptcy. And they told them when they came in, okay, we got to get on our feet. You know, we're a new company. We're going to ask you to take this subpar contract and take a $6 an hour pay cut and basically just sign on saying that, you know, in five years when we're in the black, we'll give you a better contract. We'll take care of each other. That was what the assumption the miners were operating under, that this is what would happen. But five years later, the contract negotiations start up and it's all the same. Nothing really changed. They weren't being offered bupkis. So they went on strike. And then when a tentative agreement was reached between the company and the union about a week later, I think April 8th, the membership actually voted it down. I think it was about 97%. They were not having it. And I don't think anyone expected the strike to last as long as it did, but it has. Ever since they voted down that tentative agreement, the coal miners of Brookwood, Alabama have been on strike up until, well, a couple days ago, at least. All right. We're going to get to what happened a couple days ago, but but I want to stay in sort of the past 23 months for just a moment, because I remember the first time that you and I talked about this, we talked about it in the context of what felt like kind of the year in labor, um, ways that um, that that this represented um, a moment when, um, as you point out, you know, workers were like, no, we're not going to take this and we don't have to take this. And particularly how coming out of or sort 
sort of, you know, heading back to work and some level of normalcy for so many um, sort of professional workers, you know, it was happening at the same time that folks who'd been on the front lines and at the job right throughout the pandemic um, were, you know, pushing back against this idea that they, you know, on the one hand were that they were essential workers, and on the other hand, were being treated in this way as though they were disposable workers. What is your sense now of sort of of what these 23 months have taught us about the power of workers or the lack thereof? It is so interesting to see you contextualize it like that, because you're right. These folks have been on strike through basically this entire two years of labor, you know, becoming more of a big deal. I mean, like we're seeing all the headlines about all these workers who are taking power back and organizing and striking and protesting, doing incredible work. The movement is full of energy and it's full of move. The movement is full of movement for the first time in I think a long time. And yet there is still this group of workers and I'm sure many, many other groups of workers too, right? But this specific group of workers who have been out on the front lines on strike throughout this entire two-year period, but they got left behind. They didn't get pulled into the big rallies that we've seen in the Northeast. They didn't get the New York Times headlines. They didn't get senators and fancy celebrities tweeting about them. They didn't get half of the attention that they needed or deserved. And I think that is something, it's kind of a sobering aspect of all this too, that the labor-friendly media isn't big enough yet. We can't cover every strike and some people are going to get left out. And it's kind of always been like that in this country. When it comes to major labor laws, when it comes to the rights that are bestowed on workers, someone's always left out. And in this case, I would not say necessarily it's always been predominantly white workforces like the one in Alabama we're talking about. But in general, there's always been groups of workers that have gotten less attention, less respect, fewer rights. And I think it's important to remember that, too, while we're celebrating our hard-earned victories and successes and the excitement is that it's still, there's still a lot of work to do. Remind our listeners about some of what um, these workers have faced over these past two years on strike. Um, again, the stories you've told have been just stunning. It is like Harlan County, USA down there. <laughs> it's been, it's been wild. It's, um, I think some of the most egregious things that I've reported on and seen evidence and video of have been scabs and other company workers driving their vehicles. And these are, this is Alabama, these are big trucks, driving them into the picket line and into striking workers. I know multiple people personally who have been either hit by a truck or hit by uh, flying debris, like a burn barrel, for example, that a truck drove into. And that is just absolutely incomprehensible to me that that hasn't been, that wasn't one of the biggest stories in the country when that happened, you know, but it wasn't. But there, it was a big deal. And it's part of this ever-evolving tapestry of what's going on down there. It's also just gotten so ugly in the way that the company has used the local judiciary and law enforcement to try and break this strike in any way they can. They've hit the miners with so many different injunctions and restraining orders. And basically, at one point, the picket line dwindled down to zero because there were so many restrictions on it. You know, it's... It's really been a grim scenario down there. They haven't had any support from local officials or state officials or anything of that nature. They've really been fighting it on their own and with the help of the movement. Now these striking workers are preparing to return to work. 
but without a new contract. Can you tell us what's happening? It is definitely at a very emotional moment right now for the strikers, for everyone who's been supporting them and following the story. The UMWA leadership made the difficult decision last week to send a letter to Warrior Met CEO and say, okay, we're, it's called unconditional offer of return to work. They're saying, okay, we'll, we'll send our people back. And the, the negotiations will continue. They're not going to cease negotiations. They are still trying to get a new contract. They need one. Right now, they'd be going back under the old contract, which is, of course, not acceptable to the miners. And essentially, they kind of ran out of other options because one of the primary reasons this strike has not been as successful as we would have hoped, it's not the miners' fault. It's not any person's fault. It's because of the coal prices. A couple months after they walked out, uh, I think it was like June 2021, coal prices shot up and they've stayed high this entire time. And what that means is that Warrior Met, even though they don't have their, you know, their proper workforce of well-trained, experienced miners there, they've run in replacement scabs from across West Virginia and Kentucky, and they have a much smaller temporary workforce right now. They've still been able to produce and sell and make profit on that coal. The earnings report that came out a couple weeks ago showed that they're back at 2019 levels of profit. So it's almost as if in terms of their bottom line, the strike never happened. And part of that is because, too, when the strike began during the earlier days of COVID, the mine didn't shut down. The workers still had to go to work. And so they had this 2.8 million ton stockpile of coal ready to go when the miners walked out. And so, so much of this was just bad luck and economic circumstance that really just kneecapped the strike in ways that were difficult to get over. And so by the end of it, the only people that were suffering, that were being harmed, were the miners and their families. The company wasn't feeling the kind of economic pinch that you would want throughout a prolonged strike like this. And so the union leadership decided, okay, we need to move into a new phase. We need to try something different. We need to do something to force the company to move because they'd been stonewalling them for months. So they decided, okay, we're going to send the boys back down into the mine and try and fight this out in at the bargaining table and perhaps via different legal measures. So it's the, the return date is slated for March 2nd. And I'm going to head back down there for that just to see what goes on because I am very curious to see after two years and this kind of treatment from the company, how many of the miners want to go back at all. Okay, on exactly that point, you talked with one miner, Braxton Wright, uh, who's not sure whether he wants to go back to the mines. Let's take a listen. So many people, you know, from our local government to the local news to the the NLRB to the National Labor Board, I mean, to the most pro-union, supposedly president and labor secretary that we've ever had to not even mention us, you know. So, yeah, it felt like we were just abandoned by everybody. How representative is Braxton there of um, of other folks? I am. <laughs> I think it's going to be a pretty wild meeting when I get down there next week. I think people people are mad. They're disappointed. They're upset. I've seen coal miner Facebook is pretty it, it's pretty intense, and I've seen a a lot of posts from people who are really angry at the company. Some folks are angry at union leadership. I think there's perhaps a little bit of a lack of information. And people are upset about that. It's it's all a lot messier than it seems like it needed to be. 
but you know, I have to trust for, for just the sake of staying positive and staying hopeful that the union has a good strategy in place and that the workers will win in some way, shape or form. But right now it's, it's kind of difficult to see what the path forward is going to look like, because like I said, Braxton has, he has another job that he's getting paid like $7 more an hour than he would be in the mine. And he has two kids, you know, he has, there's people that depend on him and he has to take that in consideration. I think a lot of folks are in that position where maybe they found something that makes sense for their, them and their family. And, you know, after being treated so poorly by your employers to go back without a solid contract on hand, that's kind of a tough ask. It's, it's still a developing story. You know, we're going to find out more about what happens in the next couple of weeks, but it's, a disappointing way to end a historic strike, I would say. I really wish it had gone differently for everybody's sake. Okay, stick right there. When we return, we're going to have more about the Warrior Met coal miners and their efforts to win a fair contract. The archives at Carnegie Hall hold treasures from our cultural history. In the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk, we use these items as touchstones to explore how the past shaped the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and I'll be joined by historians, performers, cultural critics, and others to look back at the iconic venue's legendary and sometimes quirky history. If This Hall Could Talk, from Carnegie Hall and distributed by WQXR. Listen wherever you get podcasts. We're back with more updates from independent journalist Kim Kelly. We're talking about the Warrior Met coal mine workers who've been on strike for the past 23 months in Brookwood, Alabama. Some of the workers will be returning to work on March 2nd without a new contract. It's interesting as you talk about wanting to hold on to that sense that the miners can win in some way. I mean, not only have you been covering this story as a journalist, but you did write a book about, um, you know, where you you build on and, and, and sort of contextualize this moment in labor history in a much longer one. Look back on that for a moment and tell me whether or not your optimism is, at least in your own assessment at this point, well-placed when it comes to American workers. In terms of American workers, broadly speaking, Absolutely. I may be a Pollyanna, but I'm not a dummy. <laughs> and I did, like you said, I wrote a whole book about labor history. Even if you lose an individual strike or lose an individual battle, there's still we're still part of this longer entrenched war. And there's still more wins to come. I think so many of the you know, the successes that we have seen, the victories we have seen, the progress we've seen has built on the work of years and decades and generations that came before. You know, sometimes if you if you go on strike and you win, that's great. But there's a lot of people that had to work really, really hard to get you and your union and just the moment you live in to that point where you can win. When it comes to workers in Alabama, it has been so painful to see the way that these workers have kind of been written off and abandoned and stereotyped. And that's something that is not new for workers in Alabama. But Alabama itself has such a rich labor history that I think doesn't get as much credit as it deserves. You know, whether we're talking about the organizing that 
Robin D.G. Kelly goes into in his iconic book, Hammer and Ho, or just the history of mine workers in that state that goes back to 1890 and, you know, has always been District 20, which these workers are part of, has always been the most diverse uh, sector in the UMWA. There's so much that has gone into this strike, so much memory and history. Some of the people that were part of this strike remember the Pittston strike of 1989, which was a similar brutal encounter, but went differently. You know, some of these folks have grandfathers and fathers and even great grandfathers who worked in these same mines. You know, it's just the the tale of it all is so long. And there's so much history that people are building on now that, okay, this strike didn't go the way they wanted to. All right, what's going to happen with the next one? What's going to happen with the next contract? What are the people that were part of this strike going to do with this experience? Like, I know for a fact that some of the women specifically who are part of the auxiliary, they're, they've changed. They've taken on leadership roles. They're different than they were when I first met them two years ago, when they would mostly say, oh, I'm so-and-so's mom, I'm so-and-so's wife. Now, one of them, Hayden, who is actually uh, married to Braxton, she's become a local uh, Democratic official. Like, she's won elections. She is going to be a force. And without the strike, I don't know that she would have had the opportunity to spread her wings like that. I love that reminder um, about how Again, in our history, we we tend to not tell the stories of the failures that um, that lay the groundwork for the successes, right? We just tell the mid-century civil rights movement story. We don't tell, right, uh, or tell much less frequently or with less clarity, right, all of the so-called failures that came before, but which trained and implemented and created structures and frameworks for the thing that we think of as finally succeeding. Right. Yeah. Without Mother Jones back in the 1800s, would the women of the Brookwood UMW Auxiliary have felt as motivated and fired up and supported as they did? They spoke about her all the time. And that was hundreds of years ago. It's all everything we do builds on something that someone else tried first. Right. And it's not an option to give up because then where are we going to go? You know, you can't break the chain, even if some of the links are a little bit rustier than others. For those who are returning to work, do you have a sense of what their top concerns are and and the ways that the solidarity that they've built, um, how they may be able to enact and engage and remain in solidarity even as they return? I think that folks are concerned about the treatment they're going to receive because they stuck with the union. They didn't cross the line. I know that folks are worried about retaliation from the bosses that work there. I'm concerned about what's going to happen when you take, I think at this point, there's 600 folks left. You take 600 coal miners who are feeling pretty emotional, spent two years on strike, and then send them down into the mines that still have replacement workers working in those jobs and turn out the lights and leave them alone and see what happens when people come face to face with the folks that cross their picket line and spit in their face. I think it it is a potentially volatile situation that I, if I was one of the people trying to negotiate and kind of uh, resolve this conflict, I would want to do it pretty quick because I don't think it's a good going to be a good situation there. But I feel like the, these folks know that they have done something historic. They have built something important. They've built a real strong community. Now these folks have spent Christmas together. They've shared groceries. They've shared childcare. They've shared 
a lot of beers. You know, I think that it's really brought people together in a way that perhaps wouldn't have happened without this strike. I think there's something to be said for, what is it, like making friends in a foxhole? <laughs> and I think that this is going to be an important chapter in all of their lives. And I know the women and the folks who are involved in the auxiliary, those relationships aren't going away. I, yeah, so I guess it's a little early to see what happens, right? But I hope that they feel like they have won something, whether it's new friendships or renewed sense of pride in their union or just the knowledge that they are part of this long line of coal miners who fought back and refused to bow their heads when the boss tried to take away their rights. Kim Kelly has been covering the Warrior Met coal strike since April of 2021 and author of the book, Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. Kim, thanks for updating us and for joining us on The Takeaway. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you guys.